Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting Njal's saga on trial. Forever and ever and ever. <laughs> oh, come on, John. It's not that bad. This is only our seventh episode on Njal's saga. Oh, trust me. I know. Oh, by the way, I'm John. And I'm Andy. Now, see, you confuse things when you mess with the intro like that. So, the seventh episode. Seventh. It means we now have as many episodes as there are days in the week. An episode a day. What a way to spend a week. Can you imagine? God help us. <laughs> Seven means that there's now one episode for each of the chakras, so you can oh. harmonize your energies while catching up on our podcast. Delightful. Did that sound say. sufficiently uh, spa-like for you? <laughs> I feel more relaxed already. Good. There are as many episodes as there are wonders in the ancient world. And, of course, one for each of the seven deadly sins. On the other side of the coin, there's one for each of the heavenly virtues, John. Let's not Mm. lead our listeners into temptation so quickly. (laughs) Uh, Oh, and there's also an episode for every color of the rainbow. Why are you coming up with virtues, chakras, and rainbows? Well, I'm in a good mood today. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Yeah, seven, of course, is also the number of Sigvasins in this saga. Or at least it was until Scarpe then cut their number down by one in our last episode. Ah, see, that's more like it. A little axe murder reference. Mm -hmm. Seven, Andy, the exact number of books in the Catholic Old Testament, beginning with the letter J. Hmm. Did you you actually count that? Or is that one of those weird things you just know? Joshua, Judges, Judith, Job, Jeremiah, Joel, and Jonah. Uh But yeah, I count it. (laughs) The question is, were, were they in your head or did you go in the book? Uh, there was a time many, many years ago in Sunday school when I could name them all off by heart. Oh, how That was sweet. many years ago. What a good, good Catholic boy. Um, <laughs> now, that's uh, not such a smooth segue to our focus on Iceland's conversion to Christianity in this episode, a subject we'll be spending a lot of time on. Yeah, that's what I was going for. Uh-huh. A segue into Christianity. <laughs> that's the ticket. Uh, so we're tackling a shorter section of the saga's timeout, but uh, first we should explain how we got here for anyone who's lost their notes. Or for those of you who are listening to this podcast out of order. Yeah, those people make no sense to me. Uh, but sure, those of you who recklessly ignore the episode designations and are diving into this halfway through the longest of all sagas, you should pay attention to this. Last time on Njal Saga. In the wake of Gunnar Hamundersen's death, Grimm and Helgen Jarlsson voyaged to Norway to seek their fortunes. Their journey led to grave danger when they ran afoul of marauders and then made an enemy of Earl Haukon of Norway. Only through the narrowest of escapes did the brothers save their hides. They also met and befriended the puckish skipper, Carrie Solmundersen, who was later to marry their sister, Helga. Why is he suddenly puckish, I wonder? Because he is. Keep going. Returning to Iceland, the Njalsons tracked down their enemy, Killer Hrapp, whose actions in Norway had nearly led to Grimm and Helgi's deaths. But Hrapp's new protectors were none other than Halgerth Longlegs and her now heinous friends, the Sigfussons. A fiery war of words at Halgerth's house led to a violent ambush in which the Njalsons killed several of their hated foes. Though really not that many. Well, among the slain were Killer Hrapp and Thrain Sigfusson. A new rift was thus created between the Njalsons and the remaining Sigfussons. And to make peace between the two families, Njal Thorgerson fostered Thrain's son, Hoskuld the White. Later, to establish a chieftaincy for Hoskuld, Njal abused his power as an expert lawyer to rearrange the entire legal system of Iceland. Imagine that. That's a magic. Hoskuld, now known as Hoskuld Vidinisgothi, married Hildegun, niece of the powerful Flosi Thorason. For a time, all seemed well on the island, but as we'll soon see, there are still those who resent the Njalsons' growing power and prestige. 
Yeah, these uh, newsreels are getting a little too ridiculous. Uh, even I'm having trouble taking it seriously now. I know, but it can be hard to keep an account of everything that's going on. Since all the twists and turns we've seen up till now really are important, we have to keep up these reminders. Yeah, the really important thing is a point that you made earlier. The Thrainsons, who are all uncles of Njal's dead friend Gunnar Hamunderson, now consider themselves enemies of the Njalsons. It's a strange uh-huh. twist of fate. Yeah, and that feud is complicated because of the many links between the two families. Now, four links are really important as we go forward. Number one, Scarpath and his friends with Gunnar's son, Hogni, who continues to support the Njalsons in other matters. Now, we're not going to see Hogni much anymore in this saga, but yes, he is mentioned a few times, and he never joins in with his great uncles against Njal's family. Number two, Hoskold Thrainson is Njal's foster son and an ally of the Njalsons. True, although that alliance is a little precarious given the family tensions. Absolutely. Number three, one of the Sigfasons, Kettle of Mork, is actually married to Njal's daughter, Thorgerd. Yeah, that complicates things for both families, but it's especially awkward for Kettle because neither his brothers nor his brothers-in-law seem to care much about their link through him. Kettle's just kind of left to figure out his loyalties as best he can. Right, and that's going to be something to keep an eye on. But the fourth link is the Njalsons' growing friendship with Morth Valgertsen, yeah. the treacherous cousin of Gunnar Hermundersen. Yeah, I really don't understand that one at all. I mean, Scarpathen mm-hmm. nearly killed this guy in revenge for Gunnar. And now they're on their way to becoming friends? What what gives? I know. know. Uh, But that one's going to be on the back burner in this section, which is largely about the conversion of Iceland to Christianity. But not exclusively. This episode Mm -hmm. is also going to ratchet up the growing tensions in the saga. In fact, not all of the Njalsons are going to escape this episode alive. That's grim. No, 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 it's not grim. Uh, You know, I, I knew when I said it. No, it's not. It's not Grim Njalsson. Uh-huh. It's Grim, small g. It's ominous. You know what I meant. I Just did. hit the button. Okay, but you know there's no button. Shut up. In this episode of Saga Thing, we find ourselves at a pivotal moment in Iceland's history. But before we get to that, there's a bit of business to wrap up after the killing of Thrain Sigfusson. Despite the settlement and Njal's adoption of Hoskuld, there's one man who's holding a grudge. This threat puts the Njalsons in danger. But which one will feel the sting of Lieutenant's blade? Not long after the violence is settled, a ship arrives on the shores of Iceland, carrying a couple of Christian missionaries. One of them is Thangbram, the son of a Saxon and the fiercest Christian missionary you're likely to meet. With his trusted companion Guthleif, Thongbrand wanders the land, looking for willing converts. Their travels will divide the people of Iceland and threaten the stability of the nation. Who will step in to resolve the conflict? Will Iceland abandon its traditional religion and devote itself to Christ? Or will the pagans win the day with the support of a like-minded lawspeaker? And how does God feel about a blind man's attempt to avenge his father? Is Iceland changing? Is it for the better or for the worse? Find out in this episode of Yo's Saga, chapters 98 to 106. So we've got to get through another feud and the conversion of the entire island to Christianity. 
Yeah, well, the conversion is obviously going to be a theme all through this episode, but it's also something that's been built into the story almost from the beginning of the saga. Mm -hmm. We've been building toward it more explicitly for at least the last 20 chapters or so. Yeah, but what's important right now is how the conversion is going to inform the story from this point forward. Mm -hmm. In other words, there's a lot happening before and after this section that happens because of the events surrounding the conversion. But even so, it can feel pretty isolated from the rest of the saga. Well, that's one of the major issues we're dealing with here, right? How well does this part of the story connect to the rest of the saga? A lot of scholars have made the argument that the conversion is just inserted into the narrative and lacks a logical connection to the rest of the story. But there are just as many readers who argue that the story fundamentally changes after this point. So as we're talking about this and the later episodes, I want to see what you think. Let us know. Absolutely. Uh, All right, let's get started. Part 26, Death of a Njalsson. So, I know we introduced a ton of new people in the last few episodes, but the author isn't done adding to the list of players in our story. If you're getting a little confused at this point with all the characters, no one would blame you. I would. There are literally hundreds of people active in this saga, and it takes a number of readings to get them all straight. It's kind of part of why we slowed things down. Right. Now, the new people for this section are three brothers, named Hallstein, Hallgrim, and Lüting of Samstather. Lüting is a rich, nasty man with a bad reputation, and his brothers are even worse. In fact, they both have to live with Lüting because no one else can stand them. Ah, this is a promising family, I can tell. If you like chaos, sure. Which is what I meant. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in that case, yeah. Uh, so this group's link to the main story is that Lüting is married to Steinvor Sigfastadter, the sister of the Sigfasons. In other words, this is a brother-in-law of Thrain Sigfason, who the mm-hmm. Nyalsons killed in that ambush, uh, I think, last episode or two episodes ago. It's a right. while ago. Last anyway. episode. Uh, and the saga ignores it, but this does connect him to the Nyalsons as well, since they share a brother-in-law. Oh, right. Yes, we just talked about this. Kettle of Mork, who is one of the Sigfasons, is actually married to Thorgir daughter. Exactly. Uh, And as we've said before, the interfamily and social relationships in the sagas can be somewhat convoluted at times, uh, but they are important for understanding how and why things happen the way they do. True, but I think it's important to note that we hadn't met Lüting before this moment. So while he may be the brother-in-law of the Sigfusons, he wasn't really a part of the settlement made over Thrain's death. You're right. Uh, He wasn't mentioned earlier, but he is here now, and he's given a rather ominous introduction. Mm -hmm. We're told that he was a big, strong man who was prosperous, but vicious to deal with. Which isn't a great first impression, is it? No, not at all. Uh, In fact, I suspect he's the kind of guy that likes to make trouble for the sake of trouble. That is a distinct possibility. Mm -hmm. Um, So, Luting has several members of his wife's family visiting him for a feast, including Hoskuld Vitenesgodi, the son of Thrain Sigvason, who's now the foster son of Njal. I know this is getting complicated. <laughs> when Luting hears that his neighbor, Hoskold Njalsson, is riding by, he immediately encourages his guests to help him attack Hoskold in revenge for Thrain's death. Yeah, there's so much wrong with this. He's got no uh-huh. business sticking his nose in here. As the husband of Thrain's sister, he's not related by blood to the Sigfusons, so he's got no claim against any of the Njalsons. Well, it may be a travesty of justice, but it's happening all the same. As you said, Luting isn't a nice guy, and he's about to prove it. Uh, well, his house is full of people who do have the right to seek vengeance for the death of Thrain, but they've mm-hmm. all agreed to a settlement with Njal already. Thrain's own son is now Njal's foster son, and thanks to Njal's action, he's also a chieftain. Uh, again, these relationships are complicated, which is kind of what makes this so much fun for us. Uh, sure. And everyone says as much to Luting, uh, that it's all been settled. 
Hoskold Thrainson refuses even to humor looting and says, May no luck come to you and your feast, <laughs> and rides away from the farm immediately. May no luck come to you and your feast. Well, Hoskold is a bit of an innocent. I uh, guess so. Uh, and even though there are some troublemakers in the group, no one, not Granny Gunnarsson, not Lombi Sigurdsson, no one wants anything to do with this. Mm-hmm. As Granny says, I will not break a settlement which good men have made. And that's saying something. Remember, mm-hmm. Granny's the one who takes after his mother, Holgerth, and he's got no love for the Njalsons. If he's not willing to cause trouble at this point, this has to be a really, really obviously stupid thing to do. That's fair. But stupid is as looting does. <laughs> the the universal contempt for his idea is no impediment to him. He's got two brothers who will follow him in whatever idiotic scheme he hatches. And he says, that, and he insists, that Hoskold's blood will serve as compensation for the death of his brother-in-law. Again, he isn't owed any compensation for Thrain's killing, but... Absolutely not. He's going to take it anyway. In mm-hmm. addition to his dumb brothers, Leeting's also <laughs> got a few servants whom he orders to come along, and, and so he's got a team of six when he rides out to confront Hoskold Nielsen. Right. Now, there are a lot of Hoskolds in this saga, uh, so we should be clear... This is Njal's illegitimate son, Hoskold, not his foster son, Hoskold. Right. Unfortunately, though, that's not going to be a problem for much longer. Hang on. We should take a second over this because Hoskold Njalsson has kind of been flying under the radar up to this point. Uh-huh. Let's delay for that. Good idea. For <laughs> starters, he's definitely the Njalsson that we know the least about. If you remember last episode, well, I couldn't remember mm-hmm. who he was. Right. Well, he lives a somewhat separated life from the others. We explained his situation a couple of sections back. But Hoskold is actually the half-brother of the other Njalsons. His mom is Hrodni, the sister of Ingjald of Keldur. He lives nearby Njal's family, so he's often traveling out on his own to and from his farm and theirs. I get the impression that the author isn't really interested in the details of this arrangement, which is interesting in itself. Uh, mm-hmm. Everyone just acts as if Hoskold's part of the family, except that he doesn't live on the family compound. Right. Remember when Njal was asking Gunnar to keep... Njal's sons at Hitherendi as bodyguards, mm-hmm. he was specifically talking about Skarpathen and Hoskold. There's no distinction made between them. They're both Njalsons, and they're both equally trusted to protect Njal's friend. Well, absolutely, and Hoskold was there in the arming scene uh, when they were going out to kill Thrain. That's right. Right? And and Grimm, I'll remind you, was not mentioned in that scene, I think. Or, he was just there. Yeah. He wasn't wearing anything pretty. <laughs> now, up to this point, we've had no hint of how anyone feels about Hoskold's illegitimate status. And that's mm-hmm. not terribly surprising, since pre-Christian Iceland allowed greater variation in how a family unit was constructed. Right, but now that doesn't mean that the non-parent spouse is necessarily th- thrilled about the arrangement. Uh, for example, Andy, if you remember back in Vatnsdala Saga, yeah, we learned that your thingman, Thorkel Scratcher, Scratcher. Was, ex- yes, <laughs> was exposed as an infant mm-hmm. because his father's wife didn't want an illegitimate child in the house. So you're saying that being an illegitimate child is a mark of future greatness? Uh, not for the exposed children who aren't rescued. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, and Andrew O'Brien needs to take a drink now. He recommended a, a few new rules for Saga Thing drinking game, and I think you just hit one of his. Ah, uh, was that when I said Scratcher? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, so enjoy, Andrew. Uh, he also suggested that everyone um, drink their non-alcoholic beverage of choice whenever one of our Thingmen shows up in a saga and we either praise or blame him. Okay, well, I can drink to that. Then let it be written. Uh, now, back to illegitimate children. Sure, but I want to point out that you interrupted the conversation. Now, so. see, there you go. Uh-huh. No, 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 no. Accusations of interrupting and digressing was one of the rules from last time, and you know it. Maybe, maybe not. But I'm going to get back to the story. 
because I like to drive forward. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as Njal's illegitimate son, Hoskold, goes, Bergthora doesn't seem to object to his presence at all, or at least no objection comes up in the saga that we're aware of. Yeah, and Hoskold's been doing just fine for himself. Mm-hmm. He manages a farm of his own. He's close with his brothers and his mother. Uh, he wasn't involved in that flurry of marriages Njal arranged for his other sons, but he seems to have figured things out for himself because he got, he's got at least one son, Amundi the Blind. Ah, yes. Yeah, I really like Amundi. Uh, we're told here that Amundi is blind, but he's also big and powerful. Um, we're going to meet him later on in the story, mm-hmm. but uh, isn't that enough background on Hoskell, John? Can we return to the main story, the, the looting okay. story? Yep, yep. So looting and his brothers set out to kill Hoskell. They hide in a hollow near the path, and for once, the ambushing party doesn't leave its spears sticking up and give them away. Finally. Uh, so they're able to get the jump on Hoskold, but he fights back well and manages to kill two servants and wound looting before the ambushers kill him by inflicting a total of 16 wounds. Mm. And then they just leave his body lying in the path. Now, this is a tragic moment in the saga, and we are going to talk about that a little bit. But it's also a criminal act, and the writer really goes out of his way to emphasize that. Instead of reporting the killing as they're legally obliged to do, they run off and hide in the forest. That makes this a murder rather than a killing. And it's also worth noting that they waited until 6 in the evening to make the attack. It's not exactly Mm -hmm. night yet, but we're on the boundaries of night, which further complicates the act. Right. And the body being left out is unacceptable. Mm -hmm. Even within a culture that recognizes the need for occasional violence, leaving a corpse to be eaten by animals or ruined by weather is execrable behavior. Fortunately, the body is found by a shepherd later that night, presumably before anything bad happens to it. He rushes home to report the slaying to Hoskold's mother, Hrodni, who refuses to believe her son is dead. Oh, this is such a heartbreaking moment. Uh, Hrodni says, he isn't really dead. And when she sees the corpse, she looks at it for a second and says, it, it's as I thought. He's not quite dead. And Njal can heal worse wounds than these. And this is her only son. Absolutely. Uh, And she insists on picking up the body and carrying it to Njal. So the question is whether she's just in shock or whether she's creating a pretext for bringing the corpse to Njal to force the Njalsons into avenging their half-brother, which Mm. suggests that she views Hoskold as an equal to his half-brothers. Absolutely. Uh, And when Rodney shows up with Hoskold's body, she also makes a strong claim to a place in the family herself. She rushes to Njal and Bergthor's bed and insists that they both come with her outside along with their sons. Well, that's putting it mildly. She says, <laughs> get up out of bed and away from that other woman of yours. And the word she uses is Elia. Um, and that's a tricky one to translate into English. It essentially means a woman who shares a man with another woman. So she's claiming equal status with Bergthor. At, at the very least. But, but mm. really, she's claiming the right of a grieving mother to seek vengeance for her son. And no one in the family is going to deny her right to that. Right. Well, it's clear that everyone takes the loss hard. Yes. Uh, Njal says, I see signs of death in him and no signs of life. Why did you not perform the closing rite for him? Njal notes that Hoskold's nostrils are open here, Mm -hmm. uh, which might seem like an odd detail. The closing rite is a custom which involves closing the eyes, nostrils, and mouth of the dead. And it's a bit startling Mm -hmm. that Hrodny hasn't done this yet. I know that our listener, uh, Ingrid Ringler, asked about this on Facebook, so forgive a very brief digression, if you will, John. By all means. We've got all the time in the world. Well, I I think you're being facetious, but this will be really (laughs) quick-ish. Okay. Tell us all about nostrils. Well, it's actually kind of interesting. 
So as everyone knows, mm-hmm. medieval Icelanders believed in draugr or walking corpses who cause all kind of troubles. Um, typically speaking, the draugr are, are the restless spirits of those who did not cross over to the realm of the dead properly. We see this a lot in saga literature, but the best examples can be found in Erbidja saga. One of the most important rituals for the family of the dead to perform, aside from removing the corpse from the house, was closing the eyes, mouth, and nostrils. And if these final rites were not performed, bad things could happen, whether that means the spirit would not cross over and become a draugr, or if it just meant bad luck for the whole household isn't quite clear to me yet. But it was very important to do this last rite quickly, both as a sign of respect to the dead, who is trying to cross over, and to ensure the safety of the living. And, and that's all I'm going to say about that. The sources for these practices are actually pretty scanty, so there isn't much more to say anyway. Um, now, you were implying that Hroldny had other purposes, though. Yeah. Um, no, well, it's certainly possible, given that this is her only son, that she's deluding herself that Hoskold might not be dead. Her response to Njal's question suggests there's more to it than that. That's right. When asked about the nostrils, she says, I was leaving that duty for Skarpathen. I really find everything about this moment tremendously emotional. Hrodny's clearly asking for the boys to take revenge for her dead son, but she's not entirely certain that she can demand it of them. Mm. But this step of asking for Skarpathen's help in the death rituals is a way of creating an obligation that she otherwise can't be positive about. Absolutely. It's a family obligation. Mm-hmm. And even Skarpathen can't muster his usual ironic detachment. He steps forward and silently closes his brother's eyes and nostrils and mouth, and then mutters, Who did you say killed him? Now, we've seen Scarpathen angry before, but we've never seen this kind of cold fury from him. Once Njal names Luting and his brothers as the killers, Bergthora points out that Hoskel Thrainson will undoubtedly come by the farm soon to try to broker a peace settlement. Mm-hmm. So the Njalsons have only a brief window in which to take blood vengeance. And then we see a bit of Skarpathen's usual character. Mm-hmm. He says, Our mother's goading is well-founded. And the brothers rush off immediately. Right. And there's one more bit of this that always gets me. After the brothers run off to seek revenge, we're told, Hrodny went into the house with Njal and was there that night. And Bergthora is okay with that. I think she's part of this, too. Hmm. This isn't about sharing a bed. These three share a family. Yeah. And that family has lost a son. While they wait for their boys to hunt their brother's killers, the older generation is going to sit up and comfort each other. It's a sad moment, but it's a beautiful one. It is. Now, of course, that doesn't mean there isn't going to be a pointed conversation later about that whole other woman crack. (laughs) Sure, but this isn't the time for it. No, no. And uh, the Njalsen boys waste no time either. They're getting busy quite quickly. Uh Uh-huh, which is understandable, right? This isn't a planned out ambush. It's a head. So they race up toward the Ranga River, but then they hear voices ahead, and they think they recognize Li Ting's voice among them. There's a hurried debate over who gets to kill Li Ting. Eventually, Grimm and Helgi decide to take him on while Skarpathen deals with Li Ting's brothers. Now, this isn't the first time we've had a hint that Skarpathen is by far the best fighter of the bunch. Mm-hmm. He wants to take on Luting himself, but his brothers ask for the privilege of avenging Hoskuld. There's also the question of who's going to have to deal with the consequences of this killing. Whenever possible, Skarpathen tries to take that kind of responsibility on himself and protect his brothers. Yeah, there's something to that. Uh, remember uh, back when the brothers killed Sigmund the Skald... Scarpe then ordered Hoskuld to stay out of the fight because he would be too vulnerable to reprisals. And, as we've seen, he was right to be worried. In this case, though, he allows Grimm and Helgi to get their way. And the three Njalsons sneak up and leap onto Luting, Halgrim, and Halstein. This is a quick brawl, but a chaotic one. 
As usual, Scarpaven is first into the fight, and he chops off Holgrim's leg. He grabs Halstein, but Luting stabs at Scarpaven's unprotected side. But Helgi's there in the nick of time to shield block the blow. Luting tumbles back, but snatches up the rock and hits Scarpaven with it, hopefully not in the hand. Right, Hall- a rock to the hand. <laughs> Halstein gets free, and the two of them try to run. That's when Scarpaven buries his axe in Halstein's mm. back, killing him. Grim and Helgi both wound Luting, uh, but he's able to get on a horse and flee. This is a dirty, nasty fight. Yeah, it, it's all close quarters fighting. Uh, people are using rocks to smash at one another, and men are getting killed while their backs are turned. It's pretty vicious. There's no strategy at all. I mean, the Njalsons are clearly not at their best. We've seen them decimate a larger force of accomplished warriors in the attack that killed Thrain Sigmund. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Scarpe then shown himself to be a master of surprise attacks during the revenge assaults for the deaths of Thord Freeman and Gunnar Hamunderson. Mm, yeah, no, this this is this is clearly the result of an emotional rage. And the lack of tactics mean, means that their actual target, Luting, has escaped. Well, Scarpathan's a little annoyed with his brothers for letting Luting get away. Well, he did say that they were better off leaving the actual revenge to him. True, but now Luting's got away, and there's a bigger problem to deal with. Yeah, uh, their father's soft spot for his foster son, Hoskold Thrainson. Mm-hmm. Remember, Luting is Hoskold's uncle. And they're worried that Hoskold will try to negotiate a peace with Njal. Which he does. Mm-hmm. Leeting may be nuts, stupid, or both, but he's not. <laughs> uh, but he's got enough marbles to know that he's in deep trouble. Mm-hmm. So he begs Hoskold to help. And Hoskold visits Njal right away while the Njalsons are still sleeping after their long night out. Mm-hmm. And the two quickly agree to a settlement. Leeting's brothers are to be considered outlaws. There's no compensation for Leeting's injuries. And Leeting has to pay full compensation for Hoskold Njalsson. Legally mm. speaking, John, this has to be considered another big win for Njal. Well, especially when you consider the two deaths that offset the one. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Uh, usually when Njal gets someone over a barrel like this, it's pretty clearly his victory. But in this case, it feels hollow. Well, we've never seen him lose a family member like this before. And it's pretty clear that he was hoping his other sons would make a settlement impossible. And when Grimm criticizes mm. the settlement later, Njal snaps at him. Huskeld wouldn't have been able to shield Leeting if you had killed him. As he was supposed to. Oh, he's definitely upset that looting is still alive. Absolutely. Uh, but I think there's another problem. Hoskold Thrainson comes to Njal with a settlement offer mm-hmm. and initiates an extra legal settlement. This isn't a court case. Hoskold gives Njal self judgment in the matter. And normally we'd call that a major victory. If Njal had won self judgment, there'd be no question that he'd claim another win. Yeah, no, I think that's the problem. The lack of a legal proceeding sort of takes the wind out of Njal's sails. This is the sort of victory any legal ignoramus could win for his lost son. And for someone of Njal's exceptional gifts, that's almost a loss regardless of the outcome. Hmm. And that snap at Grimm, that one's pretty telling too. Njal Mm -hmm. wasn't looking for a legal settlement. He wanted blood, and he didn't get it. So the question becomes then, why not just refuse the settlement? Well, because he can't. Hoskold was Mm -hmm. magnanimous in accepting a settlement with Njal's family over the death of his father Thrain. And that's the sort of thing that places an obligation on a person. Yeah, I read it that way too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's hard to shake the sense that that generosity is forcing Njal to continue paying a debt to Hoskold for the rest of his life. He's fostered the kid, arranged a socially advantageous marriage for him, rearranged the entire legal system of Iceland to create a Gothor mm-hmm. for him, and now he's swallowing a settlement with the man who killed his son, all to repay Hoskold for accepting a settlement for his father. Pretty much, yeah, that's it. And that's why this settlement is so galling for Njal. He doesn't initiate it. 
doesn't win it by superior legal skill, and doesn't want it. It's the first time we've ever really seen him have to take one on the chin in a conflict. And what about the death of Gunnar? That, well, that one broke his heart. But that was fate. And, and he knew that Gunnar was bringing the disaster on himself. And even then, Skarpathen and Hogni Gunnarsson killed several men involved in Gunnar's death. Hoskell's done nothing wrong, and the settlement allows his killer to live. And Njal is firm that the settlement be honored. Neither he nor his sons are allowed to take further action against the Leeting. And the author concludes with this line. It has to be said that this settlement between them was kept. That's pretty ironclad. It would take a miracle to avenge looting now. Well, it's funny you should say that. Uh, mm. But before we get to miracles. Part 27. And now for something completely different. So at this point in our story, something strange happens. The author just drops the narrative of Njal and his sons almost completely for six chapters, which is equivalent to 27 episodes of Saga Thing. And he takes up a whole new story. It had better be a good one. <laughs> oh, it is. It's the story of Iceland's conversion to Christianity. That is a good one. Uh, it's still a little random, though, especially on your first read-through of the saga. I know my marginal notes from my first reading of the saga are full of question marks and confused scribbling. Is it in Cran? No, no, I wasn't quite that young. Mm. Yeah, I always assumed that you just wrote long streams of curses in your books when you got frustrated. You know, kind of like you do here on the podcast. Yeah, I, I, I've been known to. <laughs> I, I cannot tell a lie. Um, <laughs> but on I, someday, somebody's going to go through all my books like after I die, and some poor student is going to end up buying them used in a bookstore somewhere. And he's going to say, what was wrong with this guy? <laughs> Why was he so angry all the time? Uh, but um, – when I get to subsequent readings in the Saga, this all came to make a lot more sense. It really doesn't come out of nowhere. There have been hints all the way through the saga that this was coming. There are. For instance, Hjalti Skeggesen, who's going to be an important booster for Christianity, he was introduced as a friend of Gunnar Hamundersen's about 30 chapters back. And there have been a few references to religious faith in the last bit of the text, and we emphasize those. Right, and remember that strange reference to Gunnar being in Valhalla. Exactly. So there are reasons to be primed for a religious angle to this story. And several figures who have been coming up in the saga, like Flossie Thorderson or Giza the White, are going to be taking a more prominent role in this section. Absolutely. I still feel bad for my students when they hit it for the first time, though. Hmm. It's, it's a major gear shift, and it can really throw you off if you're not ready for it. So we're going to be learning how Iceland became Christian, or at least how it came to call itself Christian, right? Right. And that really is going to be important for Njal's saga as a whole. Mm -hmm. The conversion is going to transform a lot of the interactions in this story. And religious affiliation is going to provide an entirely new dividing line between the figures in the story. And we should say that there's a lot more going on in the conversion than we, or even Njal's saga, can cover in this episode. Uh, we're mm -hmm. going to be recording a companion piece of this story and putting it up on the website right after this one. Or at least I think that's the plan. Right. Yeah, it's a two-part saga brief on the conversion, oh, looking God. at the historical context for this part of the narrative, along with some accounts from other sources. There's so much to go into that we couldn't even fit it all into one episode other than this one. Mm -hmm. So if you've really been champing at the bit for a chance to learn how the Faroe Islands conversion differs from Iceland's, or how naval shipping sanctions caused a religious experience under a blanket fort, you're in for a treat. But for now... We're sticking to the story as Njal Saga's author tells it. Right. So, we start with news of a change of Norway's leadership. Earl Hawken, who you'll remember from his harassment of Grimm and Helgi Njalsson, has died. And well, more like he was stabbed to death. Not, it's not a well, good death. Well, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, we talked briefly about this in our last episode. His final moments are definitely not ideal. He gets his throat cut by his own slave while hiding from his enemies in a pigsty. Yeah, that's bad. Well, it couldn't have happened to a nicer bloke. Uh, messy for the pigs, though. No, I have it on good authority that they like that kind of thing. <laughs> so, at this point, we're at about 995 AD, or CE, depending on your preference. There you go. Um, and that means that the next king of Norway is none other than Olaf Tryggvason. You might have heard of him. And that's huge news for us. This is a popular period for the sagas, and we've run into Olaf before. And we'll see him again elsewhere. Yeah, listeners might remember him from such episodes as Hallfred's Saga. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Olaf converted Halford to Christianity after rescuing him from uh, a storm. That's right. Uh, Olaf was out sailing under the alias Anchor Fluke. That's right. Apparently because he was secretly a naval superhero who saved ships. <laughs> By day, a mild-mannered Christian king. By night, Anchor Fluke, champion of the seas. Yeah, something like that. Yes. Yeah, he's king now. Um, oh, good for Anchor And Fluke. when he's not busy trying to keep the world safe for incompetent seafarers, He's building a movement to convert all the peoples of the North Sea to Christianity. Oh, well, uh, how's that working out for him? Pretty well, actually. (laughs) He makes a lot of progress in Greenland, in Norway, and in a few other places. But most Icelanders are dismissive and say it's absurd to reject their ancestors' faith. Hmm. Njal Thorgerson is one of the few who support the idea. It seems to me that this new religion is much better, and he who accepts it will be happier. If any men come here to preach this faith, I will speak in favor of it. Njol's recently taken to wandering off and mumbling to himself. Mm. That would be a bad sign in senior citizens under normal circumstances, <laughs> but in this case, it means that Njol's meditating and preparing himself for a transition to Christianity. Yeah, John Neffel Athelstainson has made the point that this behavior bears clear religious significance for Njol Saga's audience. Uh... The author includes in this the firm belief that Njal could gain information about the nature of Christianity by withdrawing from others to mumble. <laughs> the author also knew that his readers would accept this account of Njal's conduct as valid. In other words, there's nothing terribly odd about Njal's behavior if we already know that he's touched mm-hmm. with second sight and standing on the verge of a religious epiphany. Right. If he weren't a soothsayer about to undergo a conversion, his behavior would be worrying— But he is, so it's not. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. And sure enough, in the fall, a ship arrives. On board is a Christian Icelander named Guthlif Adderson, the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson of King Hjorleif the Womanizer. (laughs) Ah, nicknames. That's a lot of greats. (laughs) Great one, and a womanizer. Uh, But obviously what matters to us isn't his ancestors' amorous adventures. Uh, The part about Guthlif being a Christian is the significant point. True, and he's not alone. The ship's skipper is Thongbrand, the son of Vilbaldus of Saxony, and he's another Christian. The two of them have been sent by Olaf to preach Christianity in Iceland. Now, this is a much more complicated story than the Njal's saga author is telling us here, but we'll mostly limit ourselves to his version for now. Again, check back for a saga brief explaining more about the full effort Olaf makes to convert Iceland. Yeah, I think we can say that Thongbrand and Guthleif generally don't come off all that well in the source texts. Um... In fact, Thungbron has been described as a thug by one scholar, and he's going to kill several men while he's in Iceland. Mm. All in the name of God. Imagine that. Yeah. No, there's a pretty strong hint in Christmas Saga that Thungbron is sent to Iceland, partly because he's become too erratic and hot-headed to mm-hmm. be allowed to stay in Olaf's court. Olaf likes him personally, but his trip to Iceland is at least as much an exile as a spiritual quest. It's actually a very much like his relationship with Halfred. 
Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And it's it's not like no one's ever tried bringing Christianity to the island before. Mm-hmm. There's already a track record of people failing to convert the Icelanders. Right. That's not in this saga, though. Our author wants to present Thangbrand's mission and the conversion as an inevitability, yes. not as the latest in a string of half-baked attempts to force Iceland to accept Christ. Okay, so let's go back to that narrative. Not everyone is happy with Thangbrand's ship's arrival, which isn't surprising. And a number of people in the area actually refuse to allow trading with the ship uh, because of Thangbrand. But Hall of Sida invites Thangbrand to stay in his home and becomes more and more interested in the religious practices of the Christians. Now, one morning, Thangbrand celebrates a mass for a feast day, and Hall can't contain his curiosity any longer. In whose memory are you celebrating this day? The Archangel Michael's. What abilities does this angel have? He weighs everything that you do, both good and evil. And he is so merciful that he gives more weight to what is done well. I would like to have him for a friend. Yeah. So who wouldn't? So what's happening here is that Thongbron is celebrating Michaelmas, right? Right. And so Hall decides he likes the sound of St. Michael. And so this is going to be his patron of sorts. It's actually a fairly pagan way of thinking about an angel, but it does the trick. Oh, absolutely. And, and that's the point that's been raised about this conversion. It does have a fairly pagan flavor about it. To the extent that some readers see it as undermining the power of Christian epiphany. Pagan flavor sounds like a Ben and Jerry's seasonal ice cream. <laughs> it kind of does. Mmm, pagan flavor. Like something that would be available around <laughs> Yule time. Mmm, it's polytheistically delicious. <laughs> Sorry, uh, back to the point. Uh, yes, this is a tricky scene. Uh, the problem boils down to whether what's presented is the distinctly unchristian possibility that Hall is bartering his religious support with God. Uh Andrew Hamer, for example, argues that there may well be religious error in the narrative, but that it's not meant to be ironic or mocking. Any theological naivete, he says, is the author's own. That strikes me as being a little bit problematic. Mm. There's no reason to think that this reflects a naivete so much as it reflects an Icelandic way of thinking about religion. That's right. That's absolutely right. Uh, But what bothers me even more is the idea that bargaining with God is off limits within the medieval Christian faith. Mm Mm-hmm. I can think of any number of figures in Christian tradition who try to wrangle things from God. Lot, Moses, Thomas. Well, Jonah, although that one doesn't sure. really work out for him too well, now does right. it? <laughs> uh, and there are others. Heck, the entire cult of the saints is built on the idea of seeking advocates who can intercede with God on behalf of Christians. Yeah. I don't think we need to read a desire to convert on the best possible terms as evidence of ignorance. It's well within Christian tradition. And it works. In exchange for a promise that Michael will be a special guardian to him, Hall and his family convert. Mm-hmm. Thongbron has made a first step, and it's a big one. Hall of Sitha is an important man, and he's a respected chieftain, and now he's a Christian. Yeah, it's almost too good of a first step. Some people read this as suspiciously convenient for Thongbron, although they differ in whether the source of this convenience is backroom negotiations happening at the time, or later writers trying to craft a tale of Christian victory. Mm-hmm. Either way, Hall's conversion will be important much later in our story, so we'll stick that up on the overcrowded mental bulletin board of subtle narrative threads in Yal's saga. For the purposes of our story right now, the important point is that Thongbron and Guthleif have an ally with whom they can spend the winter. For those of you out there who aren't up on your holy days of obligation, well, this Shame is... Shame on you, by the way. 
Well, Hall's, con yes, shame on you. Hall's conversion mm -hmm. is on Michaelmas, which is at the end of September. So Hall's conversion comes none too soon, since Guthleif and Thangbrand were looking at a long, cold winter <laughs> if they couldn't find friends quickly. Yes, but fortunately for them, they do. And the fact that Hall's converted yes. at Michaelmas is going to be important much later in the saga. Like I said, we're sticking that in our back pocket for now. We're moving forward. Okay, so the following spring, Thongbron goes about preaching, and Hall travels with him as an endorsement. But not everyone's happy to see him. That is a massive understatement. Uh, pretty quickly, Thongbron has to fight a duel with a challenger. Ah, right. Love this. He kills his opponent while using a cross as a shield, which is not a subtle image. No, it is not. Uh, but the author's not looking to be subtle in this part of the story. Thongbron manages a few conversions in his travels around the countryside, including Flossi Thordersen, mm -hmm. Hjalti Skegjason, Gizur the White, and a few other men. Yeah, there are a lot of heavy hitters in this group. Yep. Uh, and several of these new converts have something in common. We're told that they're later going to participate in the burning of Njal Thorgerson's farm. So people on both sides of the conflict are converting now. I mean, what do we take as the message here? It's weird. Um, well... Okay, I read this entire section of the saga as establishing kind of a broad sweep of history against which the main story takes place. Who's converting and when is less important than the historical moment. The conversion okay. is coming, and it will help shape an Iceland very different than the settlement years. Not right away, though. No, uh, exactly my point. The rest of Njal's saga takes place in an unsettled land where the rules are changing. And no one, not even Njal, can foretell exactly where Iceland is heading or what it will become. And the reader, who does know where Iceland and the story are heading, experiences the frisson of tragic foreshadowing through these hints about what's to come. Sure. And the tragedy is greater with the knowledge that even Christianity isn't enough to stop it. Men on both sides of the coming conflict are going to be Christian. Mm. What do you think? Well, yeah, I agree completely. Well, it's a great way to look at the way the author is building the tension and using the conversion at this point. Uh, Christianity is presented as a, a great unifier of Iceland, but as we can see right away, it not only fails to unify the country under one religion and one law, it also fails to disrupt the violent trajectory of Iceland's social and political reality. It's absolutely right. Absolutely right. Um, I agree completely. But beyond the major figures do. of this saga, other people are mentioned as taking baptism during Thangbrun's tour of Iceland. Oh, absolutely. There, there's even a little aside that shows up without any real context, mm -hmm. which is that Thongbron baptizes a three-year-old boy named Hall Thorarinson. Ah, uh, yes. Now, that's a great bit of information, but it's totally unexplained in the saga. Uh, do you want to explain this or should I? Well, the point is that the Njal saga author is almost completely reliant on the writings of Ari Thorgelson, also known as Ari the Learned. Mm -hmm. So if you do any research on Iceland, you'll probably run into his name. Right. Well, actually, if you're researching modern Icelandic <laughs> geology, you might not. You never know. Anyway, when he writes Eastlending a book, Ari the Learned makes a careful point of mentioning Young Hall's baptism during his account of Thongbrand's time in Iceland. Yeah, he does indeed. Now, that's a very important point for Ari because it's one of his best claims to authenticity in his account of the conversion. Mm -hmm. Hall Thororinson lived to be a very old man, well into his 90s. Yes, and that's extremely respectable, even it for is. today. And Hall stays active well into his old age. In the 1170s, so he's in his 80s by then. Yeah. Hall takes on the duty of being foster father to a promising young scholar named Ari Thorgelson. Ah, uh, Ari the Learned himself. Exactly. Now, it's interesting mm -hmm. that this little note about Hall's baptism ends up being repeated in Njal's saga's account of the conversion at all. 
yeah, it's totally out of place here. I mean, Hall isn't mentioned at any other point in the saga, so his baptism comes across kind of as a random note rather than a vital link to early accounts of the conversion. Mm-hmm. Well, for me, it suggests that Njal's saga is relying so heavily on source material for that part of the saga that not everything lines up as well as it should. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a number of scholars who've argued that the conversion section really isn't integrated into the story all that well, and moments like this kind of support that view. So the author is mainly repeating a history that isn't primarily concerned with the people that the Njal Saga author is interested Mm -hmm. in. What we're getting is a kind of confusion of information, some of it important to our author, some of it important to Ari's history. And the connective tissue is Thongbron's mission to convert the island. Part 28. The Gods are Dogs. Right, now... Having said all that, we should emphasize that not everyone is buying what Thongbrand is selling. And in fact, most people are resisting Thongbrand and Goodleaf's missionary work. Oh, absolutely. And some of them are even going to serious lengths to stop the Christians from their work. One group, for example, hires a sorcerer named Haythen to kill the missionaries. Mm-hmm. Haythen uses his powers to call an earthquake, a really big earthquake, so big that it splits the earth under Thongbrand as he's riding alone in the wilderness. Oh, sure. That, that's one way to solve the problem. Well, I might have gone for reason disputation myself, but earthquakes certainly get the point across. Well, it almost works, actually. Thongbron leaps from his horse and climbs up the lip of the chasm, but his horse and gear all fall into the crevice and are lost. Again with the poor animals. Mm-hmm. This is a tough saga to be a horse in. <laughs> well, it's better to be a horse in this saga than in Gretchen's saga. Well, fair enough. It's also a tough saga to be a hay than the sorcerer in. Uh, because Guthleif <laughs> tracks him down and runs him through with a spear. Ouch. Mm-hmm. You'd think a magic-wielding pagan would be harder to kill than that. No, it appears you're wrong. Pretty easy. Oh, fair enough, fair Just enough. put your spear right through him. Uh, <laughs> so at this point, both sides are employing what we can call a more muscular type of religious debate. Mm-hmm. Uh, between the pagan attempts to murder the Christians and the missionaries' more successful attempt to make source kebabs out of the pagans, things are degenerating rapidly. I was going to use that. There it is. <laughs> That's brilliant. (laughs) One mind. Mm -hmm. One mind. Mm -hmm. And we'll just take one example of how this pagan-Christian divide is turning people against one another. Thorvald the Sickly. The Sickly is gathering men to ambush Thongbrand and Gutleif. Yeah, Thorvald the Sickly. I don't think we mentioned him earlier, actually. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Uh, So, to be brief, Thorvald is a prominent farmer, but he's only a minor figure in this saga. We didn't bother to bring it up earlier. But he's the maternal uncle of Harold Gerson, the guy who Hogni Gunnarsson killed for taking credit for Gunnar's death. And now he's going to get his brief moment in the spotlight. Very brief. Thorvald sends messengers to his friends asking for support in ambushing the Christians. Mm-hmm. His messenger to his friend, Ulf Ugason, delivers a verse. I, big of armor, send this order to Ulf. I'm fond of the son of Ugi, the steerer of steel, that he crush one cowardly, blaspheming cur against the cliff lodge of Gaetir, and I'll look after another. I know these verses can be a little bit obscure, especially this one. In essence, this is an order to divide and conquer. Uh Ulf should ambush one group of the missionaries, while Thorvald attacks another band. 
Can I just say, Ulf Uggason is a great name. It is. Uh, Ulf had a brief cameo earlier in the saga as well. Um, again, something we skipped over. He mm-hmm. was involved in a lawsuit against Njal's friend, Asgrim Elita Grimson. So he and Thorvald are both allied against uh, friends of Njal, right? Uh, right, but that doesn't mean they're on the same side in this pagan-Christian divide. Ulf sends back a mocking verse to Thorvald along with a warning. I don't intend to be Thorvald's puppet, and he'd better take care that his tongue doesn't twist itself round his neck. Well, those are pretty strong words, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think Ulf is on Thorvald's Christmas card list anymore after this. Well, Thorvald's a pagan, so no. All right, well, then his Yuletide list, then. Same time period. You'd send the cards out, you know. Sure, fair enough. Uh, but it's even worse than that. Uh, a mysterious man then warns Thongbrand and Goodleaf of the ambush, and the Christians are able to surprise Thorvald's crew and kill Thorvald himself. So there are no more Yule cards at all then? No. Oh, well. Uh, and that part of the story ends with Thorvald's kin mounting an attack on the Christians at the thing. But Njal and his allies step in and stop them from reaching Thongbrand's group. Right. So... We're edging closer and closer to open warfare now. Yeah, and I got to say, the Christian contingent seems to be really determined to shove Iceland over the brink. Mm. Uh, at the same assembly, Hjalti Skeggison publicly declaims a verse that has to be among the most famous in all the sagas. Mm. And it's a notoriously tricky one. Um, I'm going to use Robert Cook's translation. Okay. In barking at gods, I am rich. Freya strikes me as a bitch. One or the other must be. Odin's a dog. Or else she. Uh, wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, I've been reading the sagas for most of my life, and that one still takes my breath away every time. Just the sheer nerve that that takes. Yeah. Things are already tense. And that's like dropping a nuke on a fireworks factory. It is. And and yet, amazingly, the author doesn't even mention a reaction from those present. It's almost as if he's just trying to get that – he found that verse and he wants to really squeeze it in there, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah, there's really no context for it at all. Yeah. We're not even really told where Hjalti is when he says it. Yeah. I mean, who would even blame them for killing him at this point after that? Right. I know. Uh, it's not that there isn't a reaction. It's that there's no violent response. But there's no question that Hjalti has pushed things too far. Even though we're not told about the crowd's reaction at that moment, the very next line of the saga is, Hjalti and Gizzard the White went abroad that summer. With an angry pitchfork-wielding mob helping them find their way to the ship, no doubt. <laughs> exactly. Uh-huh. Uh, this is the sort of eyebrow-raised dry wit that's so easy to miss in the sagas. And in fact, there's another clear indicator that Hjalti just barely made it out of Iceland. Mm. A little later, it's reported that he's actually been outlawed for his poetry. Which makes sense. Well, I mean, surely we're not surprised. Mm-hmm. He called Freya and Odin dogs. You get the distinct impression that the only reason he wasn't run out of town on a rail is that good straight timber is too hard to come by. <laughs> oh, maybe a nice boiling hot geyser bath instead <laughs> would have worked. Um, or surely there's an active volcano around they could have pitched him into. Well, that would have been narratively satisfying. Mm-hmm. But I think that the self-control of the pagan faction is part of the larger conversion narrative. Uh, actually, it's something that the author is importing from his source texts. Early histories about the conversion really lean on the idea that most Icelanders were willing to give the missionaries a lot of leeway, and that they relied on legal means of chastisement when the ambassadors of Christianity went too far. So even though there's the occasional heathen the sorcerer, for the most part, people are restraining themselves at this time? Well, 
it, it suggests a kind of nationalistic pride in the Icelandic rule of law. Yeah, it also paints the Icelanders as almost proto-Christians, even in mm. contrast to the savagery of the actual nominal Christians they're dealing with. It's interesting. Re- remember, the, this missionary group is sent by Olaf Tryggvason, the king of Norway. And a version of this story where the Icelanders convert almost in spite of the Norwegian mission feeds that same Icelandic pride and independent spirit. Absolutely right. Mm-hmm. And as we said earlier, we'll be getting into all this in much greater detail in the briefs on the conversion, which should be up on the site soon after this one. Yeah, for now, we should say that the pagan group isn't entirely silent about the Christians. When Thongbrand's ship runs aground later that summer, he has to put up with Stainen, the mother of Ref the poet, mocking him. Isn't this the woman who claims that Thor once challenged Christ to a duel, but Christ didn't show up? That's right, she did. But she also claims that Thor wrecked Thongbrand's ship, uh, the bison is the name of the ship, and she, she mocks him with this poem. The shaping gods drove ashore the ship of the bell-ringing priest. The slayer of the son of the giantess smashed bison on the seagull's rest. No help came from Christ when the sea's horse was crushed. I don't think God was guarding the sea king's reindeer at all. <laughs> It's a nice dig at Thangbrand, the slayer of the son of the giantess, that's Thor, and mm-hmm. the sea king's reindeer is another kenning for ship. So Christ did nothing, and God was negligent in protecting Thangbrand's interest, while Thor was an active force in the ship's destruction. Uh-huh. And Stainen is allowed to get the last word here. She just turns on her heel and walks away, and Thangbrand never really responds to her taunts. No, not directly, maybe. Uh, but, but he's not giving up on his quest, and he continues moving around the island on foot. Okay, wait, but wait a second. What? I want to look at this. Uh, Stainon's verses and her claim that Christ didn't show up for a duel with Thor. Uh-huh. The whole thing is a dig at the supposed passivity of Christ, which fits into a recurrent theme from the pagan camp during these conversion narratives. Well, and it's being contrasted with the more active role Thor supposedly takes in the world. Mm-hmm. And remember Hall's questions about the Archangel Michael? Well, Stainon mm-hmm. seems to be suggesting that Christ isn't an especially valuable friend to have since he can't or won't defend his own honor and the property of his allies, which is very important to the Germanic people. Absolutely. So in essence, she's accusing Christ of being a bad chieftain. Yeah, well, I guess she is. Uh, and it's true. She's she's making a real case for Christ being kind of a washout as a leader. I'm not sure that's his profile, I mean, being, a, being a strong Icelandic chieftain. Uh, although there are some great examples of Christ being reworked to fit a Germanic warrior culture's ideals. I mean, look at something like the Anglo-Saxon poem, Dream of the Root. Oh, sure. That's a great poem, and I just taught it in my Lit in English 1 mm-hmm. class. Um, if, if anyone's listening that hasn't read The Dream of the Rood yet, it's totally worth it. You've got to go look it up. It's only a couple hundred lines, and it's amazing. And it does have Christ decked out in a young warrior's gear, which he strips off and then climbs up the cross by himself. Mm-hmm. Um, he takes on the ordeal of the cross eagerly. Yeah, no, my favorite thing about that, I always point out to my students, mm-hmm. is that he cl- he's so eager that he leaps up onto the cross, he climbs up, and yeah. then someone else has to climb up after him to nail him on. That's right. But that he's, he's actually sort of up there on his own. Yeah. yeah. He's active, he's manly, he's warriorly, he's victorious. It's such a great poem, uh, especially for studying the way Christ imagery is shaped and directed by individual cultures. Mm-hmm. But that's just it. Why aren't we getting a more Icelandic Christ here? Well, I think there are some very complicated answers to that. I know, I know. But but one major factor is that the version of Christianity we're seeing in this story owes a lot to the era in which Ari the Learned is writing. 
Mm-hmm. In Ari's time, the church is promoting a more universalized and less idiosyncratic Christ. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and in fact, there's something interesting happening in the displays of Christian power that we are told about. Fangbron's use of a cross for a shield, his escape from Hathen the Sorcerer's magics, and so on. Yeah, and there's another episode that's coming up. Oh, right. Uh, but if we think about this in thematic terms within Njal Saga, it's interesting that Stanen's verses highlight one of the more difficult aspects of the New Testament for many of these northern peoples. Christ's resignation to his death, for example, is much different than the verses we read a while back celebrating Gunnar's refusal to bow in the face of fate. That's true. And we're going to see that pay off in an interesting way in the future of this saga. But for right now, we've got a serious religious debate to resolve. Oh, and of course, this next bit is going to totally undermine everything we've just said. Oh, right. Yeah. Is this Ogtrig? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't really know that it undermines us. Mm. Um, the story here is that Thongbrun is going to kill a berserk. And in doing so, he convinces a large number of people to take baptism. Yeah, well, maybe it's not so much that it undermines what we're saying, so much as it's sort of a rebuttal to it. Okay, yeah, that makes more sense. So do you want to tell the story briefly? I I just did, very briefly. Slightly less briefly. <laughs> okay, so Thongbrun is invited to the home of guest Oldlifson, uh, who's a famous and popular chieftain. The guest has a large gathering and allows Thongbrun to speak about Christianity at this. Now, at first, it's not clear what guest is up to. Is he actually interested in converting, or is he treating Thongbrun as a kind of after-dinner entertainment? Well, the pagans in attendance get pretty riled up by Thongbrun, which isn't surprising, really, given right. what we know about him. And so he offers a bet. There's a berserk named Ogtrig on his way to guest's house. Thongbrun proposes lighting three fires, and then the Christians and pagans will each bless one. Whichever fire Ogtrig is afraid to walk through wins. Now, obviously, the answer should be that he'll refuse to walk through any of the fires since they're, you know, fires. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is a berserk we're talking about. Of course. And the story also ignores the fire that neither group blesses. Uh, well, you know, I mean, you can support a third party bonfire if you want, Andy, but really, you're just throwing your vote away. <laughs> Are you going to be doing a terrible political joke in every episode until the election here, John? I- Terrible? <laughs> that was a good one. I don't know. I hope not. Anyway, Ogtrick shows up at the party. Well, he shows up at the party and immediately charges through the pagan blessed fire, as you do. Right. I haven't been to a party like that in a while, but I'm familiar with the type. Yeah. Sure. But uh, Ogtrick approaches the Christian fire, but shrinks back away from it. Mm. This is starting to sound like an ad for berserk repellent. <laughs> We've replaced Ogtrick's usual bonfire with one sprinkled with holy water. Will he notice the difference? He's a monster before he has coffee in the morning. But of course, Ogtrick does notice, and he draws his sword in a rage. But then mm. Thongbron hits him on the arm with a cross, and the saga says, Then a great miracle happened. The sword fell from the berserk's hand. Wait, that's the miracle? Mm-hmm. What about the berserk-repellent fire? No one's impressed by that? Uh, have you ever tried to disarm a berserk? Uh, okay, that's a good point. Not easy. After that, Thongbrand, Guthleaf, and uh, a few other men hack Ogtrig to pieces, as Christian men will do. And sure. Guest is so impressed <laughs> that he and his party guests are baptized on the spot. It's right. a miracle. Right. The miracle of being hit in the hand with a cross, like a rock to the hand. And then chopped into pieces. Right. Okay, so there are some examples of a more direct kind of Christian influence in this story. Yes, once in a while. But Thongbrand's mm-hmm. still making as many enemies as converts. And the island's increasingly split down the middle. And it's getting closer and closer to a breaking point. Part 29. The Conversion of Iceland. 
so that's another one of those titles that sort of gives the game away, isn't it? Wow, we've been foreshadowing the conversion for several episodes now. I don't think anyone's surprised it's going to happen. <laughs> right. Okay, so what is going to happen here? Well, we've already started to see the exodus of Christians from Iceland. Uh, Hjalti and Gizur are hiding out in Norway. Thangbran now rebuilds his ship and heads out to Norway as well. On Guest Aldufsson's advice, Thangbrand decides not to visit the Western Fjords. Ah. Well, he's more or less told that they'd kill him if he shows up there, which makes a lot of sense. (laughs) This is the land of the Thorsnesings and the real pagan strongholds we're talking about. And Guest makes the point, which is a pretty important one, that the matter will eventually have to be settled at the Althing anyway. After all, that's how things work in Iceland. Well, the problem is that Thangbran and the other Christians have made themselves persona non grata at the Althing. In fact, while Thangbran's packing up to go, word comes that Hjalti Skeggjason has been outlawed for the whole poem about the gods or dogs. Mm. It's not a surprise, but it's definitely getting a little hot in Iceland for Thangbran right now. It's not surprising that he's leaving. Of course, the saga author makes a point of detouring Thangbran's company through the south so that they can conveniently stay with y'all for a few days while uh, uh-huh. before they sail out. Uh, now, your tone tells me that you aren't buying this part, hmm. and I agree. Uh, it strikes me as a fairly blatant massaging of the story. Well, I mean, it's not even important to the narrative, apart from reminding us that Nyong is out there and mm. playing a small part in this conversion narrative. Right. Uh, now, the next actual important piece of information is that when Thangbrand returns to Norway, he reports on the violence of the Icelanders and how badly he was treated. Which is really pretty unfair. We've seen a lot of violence, but the Christians have given as good as they've gotten. And Thongbrand himself is responsible for several killings, not all of them in self-defense, I might add. Yeah, but he's the one giving the report. In his version of things, he's a Boy Scout helping little old ladies across Thingveller, and the Icelanders are crazed warlocks who try to assassinate him with earthquakes. Well, I mean, the second part is kind of true. We've got to give one him credit. One time they did that, Andy. One time. It's not like <laughs> they made a habit of it. It's not like you won't forget that, though. Right. Fair enough. Uh, anyway, Olaf listens to Thongbrand's version of events, along with the testimony of Gizur and Hjalti, who are at Olaf's court as well, and he is not happy. No, he isn't. And Olaf's got a reputation for going a little over the top when he's angry. Yeah. Uh, he arrests every non-Christian Icelander in Norway and makes plans for a giant execution. So, yeah, a little disproportionate. Hjalti and Gizur managed to talk him down, but... But they then set out for the all thing to try to convince their countrymen that they need to convert to appease Olaf, if not for religious reasons, which is part of Olaf's story. I mean, he does this everywhere. Yeah, yeah. No, this is actually one of the moments when our author is smoothing over some of the messier history. According to other sources, Olaf is hanging on to the sons of several of the most prominent chieftains in Iceland as hostages. In which case, Hjalti and Gizur are more or less delivering the ransom note. Yes, that very much reminds me of Snorri Sturluson. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All those kind of back and forth. Almost to the point where you wonder if there's a model there. Yeah. Um, But it's not as if he's coming off like a reasonable and calm fellow in this version. He's just not threatening to mutilate every Icelander he finds the way he does in, say, the Christie saga. Right. So everyone convenes at the all thing and things are set. Wait, wait, wait. Hang on. Yeah. Now what? Hjalti and Geezer are at the all thing, right? Yeah. Oh, oh, right. Well, Hjalti's outlawed. Does he remember that he's outlawed? Does anyone else remember that he's outlawed? That's a good question. Um, he doesn't know about that until he's already back in Iceland. Ah. And there's a plan at first where he's going to stay in hiding. Is it a cunning plan? No, uh, because he essentially decides, nah, screw that. Oh, well. And he rides into the all thing bold as brass. 
Bold as brass, you say. Well, I'd expect no less from the Freya's a bitch poet, but uh, a reader might wonder why no one just kills him. They'd certainly like to, and they've got the legal right to do so as well. Well, maybe, but no one wants to make the first move. Uh Uh-huh. Well, that's because Hjalti's acting on behalf of Olaf now. Mm -hmm. And killing the king's emissary is probably the only thing left that would make him madder than he already is. And you won't like Olaf when he's angry. Well, you can see why that makes sense. But there is another matter. The entire all thing is ready to explode right now. And killing a Christian would be like setting Guy Fawkes on fire and throwing him at the gunpowder. What? See, your analogies are complicated and vexing. I don't know what to do with you. (laughs) (laughs) But you're right. Both sides recognize that a fight is almost inevitable unless something is done. And if a brawl starts, it runs the risk of becoming an island-wide free-for-all. Yeah, the problem is that both sides now declare themselves out of law with each other, meaning that they will no longer recognize one another's oaths as valid. It also means that they aren't obligated to continue even following the same laws. And with no real hierarchical infrastructure to enforce compliance, the entire Icelandic experiment is really wobbling at this moment. Right. Now, we're working on several Saga Brief episodes right now that touch on this, so Mm -hmm. I don't want to go too deeply into it here. But the problem is that Iceland's self-governance in the early medieval period is essentially Rousseauian in nature, but in a way that sort of tries to outmaneuver the political entropy predicted by Rousseau. Um, Now, you don't want to go too deeply into this, but you're going to drop Rousseauian into the discussion? That's very briefly. Briefly. Let me break it down (laughs) as quickly as possible. All right. Jean-Jacques Rousseau argues that man exists as a political animal in three stages. Mm Mm-hmm. A liberated or natural state in which we are all more or less free but exist without law or morality. A legal or civil state in which individual rights are sacrificed or limited in exchange for law and mutual agreements or morality, in other words. Uh, And third, a degenerate state in which each individual is in competition with his or her fellows while also being increasingly reliant on them. Mm -hmm. And that's how oppressive governments form. Now – I love Rousseau, and I teach mm-hmm. him frequently, but this is your brief version, is it? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, reduced to a core concept, the three states are anarchy, direct democracy, and representative assembly. For Rousseau, the third state is inherently unstable and leads to despotism and hierarchical control through oligarchies. Okay. So, the desirable state is the second state, where people practice direct democracy. That's right. what they should be doing. Right. Law allows everyone to agree to a social contract in which the limitations on personal freedom are clearly laid out and limited. Mm -hmm. The tricky part is that direct democracy always threatens to slide into representative assembly. Icelandic government in the late 10th century is sitting right between the two. Uh, This is really sounding like something we should get into in our brief on the political system of Iceland. We will. But But for now, my point is that Iceland is trying to maintain a cooperative system in a fiercely competitive environment while relying on representative assembly to steer the legal system. From a Rousseauian perspective, this is an inherently unstable situation. And if the Christian and pagan sides break legal contact with each other, the whole system either collapses utterly, bringing us back to anarchy, or saves itself only by civil war and oppression of one side or the other. And in either case, the balance of cooperative government is lost. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. Okay. But but Rousseau didn't reckon on one thing. We got to think of this. Yeah, which is? Well, Icelanders at this time are really, really committed to their social <laughs> contract. I mean, law is like a combination of religion, political system, and sporting event for them. 
<laughs> it's probably fair, yeah. And except for a handful of extremists on either sides, both groups recognize that this division of the legal system is toxic to virtually everything the island relies on for its combination of independence and stability, mm. which means that the cooler heads are going to be allowed to seek a solution, even if the extremists don't like it, which is kind so, of what Nyal does all saga long. Sure. See, now this sounds suspiciously reasonable. So what's the catch? Well, the catch is that the logical person to lead the assembly to a decision is the law speaker of the island. Okay. And they're fortunate in that the speaker they've got right now is Thorger Thorkelson, who's been speaker for 15 years and is universally respected. Right. Uh, we should note that Njal Saga says that Thorger's father is Tjorvi Thorkelson, but every other source says that uh, Thorkel is Thorger's father. So it's confusing. Okay. So whatever his, his surname is, mm-hmm. Thorger can make the decision. Well, sure, but Thorgir is a pagan. So. Aha. Mm-hmm. But fortunately, he's a pagan with a number of relatives who've recently converted to Christianity. Um, and Hall of Sitha represents the whole Christian coalition. Well, he kind of has to, doesn't he? I mean, most of the other prominent figures on the Christian side are either outlawed or clearly in King Olaf's pocket or both. Mm-hmm. Well, in any case, he formally submits the question to Thorgir, along with a symbolic payment of three marks of silver for judging the case. Hmm. And then Thorgir solemnly announces that he will consider the question, and he goes and hides under a cloak or possibly a blanket. He he goes and hides under a blanket. Yeah, or, or a cloak. Hard As to say. one does. Yeah, he spends a day and a night under there, and when he comes out, he sees his shadow and predicts six more weeks of winter. <laughs> Punxsutawney Thorgir? No, no. Uh, no, he actually comes out and announces that after his time under the cloak or blanket, he's ready with a decision. But he prefaces it with a short statement. Yeah, uh, I've got it right here. Um, he says, Our affairs will reach an impasse if we do not all have the same law. For if the law is split asunder... Then so also will peace be split asunder, and we cannot live with that. It's a bit of a giveaway about what we were saying a minute ago. Yeah. Uh, it's clear that the moderate voices at the All Thing are less concerned about whether the island is pagan or Christian than that it be lawful. Mm-hmm. The tensions between the religious factions, along with the external pressure from Norway, are going to force a decision here. But Thorgir wants to be absolutely clear that this is, first and foremost, a legal decision. And then he asks whether both sides agree to abide by the decision he's made. And that's wise. He hasn't announced the decision yet, but first he's forcing both sides to agree that they are actually back in legal accord with each other, Mm -hmm. since they both have to agree to the law in order to learn who's won the argument. He's a clever one, Thorger is. He is. And the announcement itself is that the island will become Christian. Thorger allows most pagan practices to continue, including sacrifices to the old gods. So, in fact, what he's mainly done is to create an official religion where one hadn't previously existed. Right. And we should be clear that the pagan contingent is not happy about the outcome. Uh, it says here, The heathens considered that they had been greatly deceived, but the new law took effect nonetheless. And that at least suggests that they weren't expecting to lose. Right. And there are still a lot of questions to consider about why he comes up with the decision he does, and then why he robs it of most of its actual power by creating legal exemptions for pagan practices. I mean, is this just an island-wide version of the joke baptisms we saw the Vikings agreeing to when they made truces with Christians? And what's up with that blanket fort? Yeah, well, there's not a lot of agreement about what's going on here. Uh, Robert Cook offers a note, for example, and just asks questions. No answers. 
Did Hall bribe Thorgeir? Did they agree beforehand that Christianity should be adopted? Did Thorgeir lie under the cloak in order to ascertain the will of the gods or just to prepare his speech? These and further questions cannot be resolved here. <laughs> Good note. Well done, that's, Cook. That's great. Thanks. Mm-hmm. That's not terribly helpful. Fortunately, there are a couple of saga briefs on the way that we hope will clear some of this up. Right. But for now, the island is Christian, at least in name. And that means it's time for something we asked for back at the beginning of this episode. Is that right? Part 30, Amundi's Miracle. Oh, right. Amundi. So, back at the beginning of this episode, we told the story of Hoskold Njalsson's death at the hands of Luting of Samstafer and the attempt at blood vengeance made by the other Njalsons. Now, I don't know if that's fair. It wasn't just an attempt. They killed both of Luting's brothers, wounded Luting himself, mm. And then their father took a heavy compensation payment from Luting for Hoskold's death. So it's kind of... Right. But Luting, the man who killed their brother, is still alive. True. For men like the Nielsens, that's unacceptable. Okay. But their hands are tied. Their their father did make a settlement, as he always does. And we've already mm-hmm. been told that they, they all hold to that agreement. So they can't do anything. Ah, but not everyone has been consulted about that settlement. And there's one guy in particular who's been left out of the negotiations and compensation. Mm, yes. And if I remember the title of this section correctly, <laughs> it's Hoskold's son Amundi. Amundi the Blind. Right. Now, first of all, we should explain. This is not an exaggerating name suggesting that Amundi is nearsighted or anything like that. We've seen figures like that in the sagas before. Amundi is sightless and has to be led from place to place by friends. Now, is that why he wasn't paid off as part of the compensation package, or what's going on there? No. Uh, and without question, his blindness is a problem for him. Uh, but the exclusion from the compensation package is because of a different issue. Amundi is an illegitimate child. Aha, uh-huh, different issue. I see what you did there. Uh-huh. <laughs> but... I was hoping to slide that one by. Uh-huh, nope, not having him. But uh, this is a real problem that Icelandic law sort of creates. Illegitimate children mm-hmm. aren't really protected by law when it comes to things like compensation. Yeah, and this isn't the only time in the sagas that it comes up. Uh, but this doesn't mean that Amundi can't be included in the compensation, just that he isn't. Okay, so briefly, Amundi is introduced three years after the conversion of Iceland. Amundi is attending the Thingskalar assembly, and he has himself led to Luting's booth, and that's where he confronts his father's killer. I want to know what compensation you will pay me for my father. I've paid full compensation for the slaying of your father, and your father's father and brothers took the money, while my brothers went uncompensated. I committed an evil deed, but I paid heavily for it. I'm not asking whether you paid them compensation. I'm asking what compensation you'll pay to me. None whatsoever. I don't find that to be just before God. And I can say this. If I were sound in my eyes, I would either have compensation or blood revenge for my father. And may God now settle between us. Now, ignoring our performance, that's a powerful moment. Our, our powerful performance ha- helps to evoke well, that. Right, yeah. right. So. The moment itself is nothing without mm-hmm. our performance. Uh, now, as Amundi is leaving the booth, his eyes are suddenly opened and he can see for the first time in his life. Praise be to God, my lord. Now it can be seen what he wants. And apparently what God wants is Amundi's axe in Leeting's head. Because that's exactly <laughs> what Amundi does next. He chops Leeting's head in half. 
That's always an impressive mm-hmm. move. It's gross, but it's effective. <laughs> and as Amundi leaves the booth, his eyes close again, and he's blind for the rest of his life. Uh, there's one other thing. Uh, Amundi visits Nial immediately after and tells him about what happened. And Nial says, You are not to be blamed for that, for such things are preordained. And Nial arranges a half compensation to be paid for looting. The end. Well, except we can't just leave things like that. I mean, that's a crazy story. What's, <laughs> what is going on here exactly? Uh, so, okay. Um, there are a few things to talk about. But the first question we have to ask is, why was Amundi cut out of his father's compensation package? Why aren't Grandpa Nyal and Uncle Scarpe then making sure that Amundi gets a share of the compensation? Well, I mean, it's a good question. And there are at least three possible answers. The first and simplest one is that the text seems to imply that the lawful payment went to Nyal as the father of the dead man. And whether he keeps it for himself or uses it to help Hoskold's mother, Hrodni, set up a new life, it doesn't go to Amundi. As a result, Amundi doesn't swear to the agreement since he was never asked about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the second option, which I reject, by the way, is that Amundi was part of that agreement or received part of the settlement payment, but doesn't think it was enough. Yeah, that one doesn't make any sense. There's no suggestion of any underhandedness here, and both Leeting and Amundi make reference to the settlement. If Amundi were breaking an oath and demanding additional compensation, that would definitely come up. So that's really not something that's right. Absolutely not viable. Now, the third option, which probably won't surprise anyone who's heard us talking about Nyal up to this point, is that Nyal deliberately leaves Amundi out of the mm-hmm. settlement. And I think you know that I like this answer best. Uh-huh. It could mean that Nyal has foreseen that Amundi will be the one to avenge Hoskold, so he leaves him out of the settlement, so Amundi's revenge won't mean breaking an oath. So, manipulation. Yep. Right. Or, and if we, we can read this as being even more devious it's, on It's Nyal's already part. pretty devious if you go that way. Well... But perhaps he hasn't even seen the future. He merely cuts Amundi out in order to force him to seek revenge against looting uh-huh. in another way. It comes down to whether you think Nyal would manipulate his own grandson that way without a vision of the future guiding him to do so. Well, there's definitely a hint here in the saga that Nyal knows something. He says mm-hmm. that these things are preordained. Yes. It's preordained. That's a strong word for a man with foresight to throw around. We know Nyal sees the future. Did he see Amundi killing Luting? Well, Nyal's one of those who converted to Christianity, but there's no suggestion that his foresight was tied to his paganism. He still continues to see the future. And the idea that he sees a way for Amundi to get revenge that he and his sons can't have, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. So let's go with this interpretation. Did you want to talk about Amundi's blindness at all? I mean, that's kind of a cool thing to touch on. Yeah, uh, it's an interesting moment, but mainly for the ways that blindness intersects with Christian miracle stories in general. Um in terms of the actual condition of Amundi's eyes, I think it's pretty clear that the author has thought about the situation, I, I'm going to call it metaphorically or theologically rather than historically. Interesting. Because of what? Why do you say that? Uh, because Amundi's been blind since birth. I mean, we could get into a whole digression about blindness in medieval mm-hmm. culture. There's a, there's an excellent book on the subject by Edward Wheatley. It's called Stumbling Blocks Before the Blind. And it studies the phenomenon mostly in English and French sources in the Middle Ages. It's well worth a read if people are interested. And within Scandinavian culture, we can look at blindness through nicknames and historical attestations or through mythology. Sure. I mean, for instance, uh, Hod is called the blind god in Norse myth, uh, and he's a fascinating character. But I want to keep us on track here. The point for us is that, like Hod, Amundi's not injured. He's congenitally blind. 
Uh, and yet his sudden vision causes him no confusion or disorientation or hesitation. Well, it's meant to be a miracle, right? Uh, presumably, mm-hmm. thinking from a medieval perspective, the miraculous restoration or bestowing of sight uh, would come with a necessary knowledge to understand that sight. Right, and that speaks to an imaginative reconstruction of blindness from a sighted perspective, right? as opposed to from a the perspective of someone who is sightless. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. But again, let's stick to our text. So the author is thinking theologically rather than historically, but there's still an obvious problem here. There's more than one problem. (laughs) Okay. Uh, But the one I'm interested in is the question of just what sort of a miracle this is supposed to be. Uh, Hammer's worth quoting here. The morality of the story of Amundi the Blind provokes a critical debate that remains unresolved. There is an obvious ethical problem in God's apparently performing a miracle in order that Amundi may commit a revenge killing. Well, there's a kind of problem there, but I'm not sure about the idea that the ethical problem is as obvious as Hamer thinks. This isn't an ethical problem if your cultural ethics endorse revenge killing. That's very nicely mm-hmm. said. Uh, I absolutely agree. Um, the difficulty, I think, lies in differentiating among the forms of Christianity in its modern iterations, its other medieval iterations, and its medieval Icelandic type. Right? Not everyone does that, uh, so that we have someone like Finnur Johnson arguing that Amundi's miracle is, according to our sensibilities, a blasphemy. Now, I mean, that's an older piece of scholarship, but even recently... That's why I used that voice. (laughs) (laughs) More recently, Theodore Anderson has asked, is it a miracle or the mockery of a miracle? See, now that's... I think that's a better question to ask. Mm -hmm. Um, Look, you can read a text from your own perspective, judge everything it offers by your own standards, and come away having read the book. Maybe even gotten something from it. But reading is about living inside someone else's thoughts and ideas for a while. Insisting on using only your own point of view as a means to understand what you read, for me, seems like a failure of both reason and imagination. Well, I think that Stanley Fish and the Reader Response Theory people would thumb their noses at you for saying that, but I tend to agree. <laughs> I mean, like you, I, I tend to look at the text as an artifact that preserves a moment, and I'm... I'm far more interested in that moment and what the text says about it than I am in my personal response to it. But that doesn't mean that the text doesn't speak to me, but I want to understand the text on its own terms as best I can before I can really engage in any questions about my personal feelings or response to it. Well, I've been thumbing my nose and several other parts at the reader response people for years, so I'm fine with your assessment. Okay. Uh, so for me, the question to ask here is, what can we learn about the culture and world Amundi inhabits? Well, there are still multiple answers to the question. We haven't really gotten well, I, anywhere, I, have we? No, I didn't say it was an easy question. Uh, but I think that's where we have to look for any answer to our question. Would the audience for this saga really have found Amundi's actions incompatible with Christianity as they understood I it? submit that they would not. Yeah, or maybe as that audience would have expected a man of the conversion era to have understood it. Remember, there's 300 years gap here. Interesting. Well, in either case, we have to remember the serious duty of avenging one's father in this culture and in this type of literature. Mm -hmm. We've talked about it several times before. There's no more important duty for a son than to see to revenge for his father's death. And Amundi, a blind man, gets this done. Mm-hmm. And I think that informs why Amundi immediately interprets his sudden sightedness as divine encouragement. Absolutely. Well, and it speaks to the power of, of Christ, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. That that he can he can aid a blind man in the avenging of sure. his father. That's kind of an And there's no end to I mean Saints Life stories in which miraculous strength or miraculous ability or miraculous healing allows someone to commit a violent act. Oh, absolutely. 
Um, and, and a lot of readers treat this as evidence that nothing really changes in this saga as a result of the conversion. We have people taking revenge before and after the conversion, and people who resist or regret violence before and after. So what exactly is the difference here? See, now you're baiting me here, but I'll rise Okay. Uh, one obvious difference is that Amundi's revenge happens in God's name. Absolutely. Right? Or at least Amundi thinks it's got God's sanction. Mm-hmm. And another factor is that the author deliberately separates the two parts of this story, Hoskell's death and Amundi's revenge. Right? And in between them, he places this long narrative arc about the conversion. Mm. If Christianity is irrelevant to Amundi's moment, then the author has made a fairly basic blunder of pacing and emplotment. Ah, that's fair. And and we haven't been finding that this author's given to doing things kind of pointlessly. In fact, just mm-hmm. the opposite. He's a master of seeding in information and paying it off later. But anyway, there's another thing. See, you got me all riled up. Oh, now. I like this. It's fun. Shut up. Uh, <laughs> the thing is, I think there's an untenable assumption here. If we say that Amundi's reasons for thinking that his sudden ability to see is an encouragement from God to avenge his father's death, do we necessarily need to assume that that's entirely because of vestigial pre-Christian cultural oh norms? My goodness. I mean, a medieval Icelander might have found ample justification for violent reprisals against an enemy in, for example, the entire Old Testament. Uh, okay, so Christian scripture could be read as approving of a vengeance ethic. Yes. If you're selective. And yeah, that's an important <laughs> point. The miracle might be considered fully justifiable in Old Testament terms, wherein numerous examples of honorable deeds of revenge can be found. Lars Lonroth makes that point as well. And I see the logic. I mean, see, this is why I have to bait you once in a while. This is good stuff. Yeah, this, you're a mensch. No, thanks. Uh, and I'd push that even farther. I'm an ubermensch. It's probably a mistake to assume that medieval Icelanders would necessarily privilege the kinder, gentler New Testament over the Old Testament, especially where the Old Testament was far more accommodating of their pre-existing social approval of revenge. Which is true of warrior cultures throughout Western Europe during the conversion Absolutely. period. I know this is a very different circumstance, but we do get the story of Christ and the money changers in his temple. So that's one of the few stories that appears in all four Gospels. And at the very least, it shows that justifiable anger and violence were recognized within the church even at the divine level. Mm-hmm. So if Jesus can act on righteous anger once in a while, then it's okay if Christians do too. Well, as you know from your work with emotions, that kind of thing might even make him more appealing to some audiences. Well, like an audience used to using violence as a tool to protect family honor, for example. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, that's only one example. The Old Testament offers a large number of instructive examples of smiting and vengeance for the studious Icelander. <laughs> and, and those same examples proved attractive to the Anglo-Saxons during and after their conversion as well. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable comparison. But something tells me you're not wholly satisfied with leaving it there, are you? Well, of course I'm not. Because uh-huh. we still have to contend with the immediate return of Amundi's blindness after the vengeance is complete. See, I don't think it's all that complicated. He mm-hmm. was given sight to avenge his father and restore balance. And once that's done, it's back to basics. Uh, maybe, but it's interesting that the gift of sight is suddenly revoked. I mean, that's a bit unusual. Is it really? Well, it's unusual enough to attract attention from scholars, so, you know, yeah. I think it's worth considering Hamer's argument, uh, which is that Amundi's miraculous gift of sight is revoked due to his insistence on immediately using his newfound vision to pursue an older, pre-Christian revenge. Oh, come on. See, see, I don't like that. It doesn't fit the culture to me. It doesn't fit the saga. The vision is clearly restored for express purposes of vengeance, not for a life of sightedness after vengeance. 
Mm-hmm. No, but I do like it. It's not necessarily how I would read it, but I appreciate what it opens up in the story. It's okay. a new way of thinking about the ways in which the author of Njal's Saga might be steeped you know, in a continental Christianity of the late 13th century, which is almost certainly not how things would have been understood right after the conversion. Okay, but, I mean, if you're going to go with Hamer, it, it confuses things. Which version of Christianity mm-hmm. are we supposed to see in action here? Exactly. Is the author approving of Amundi's vengeance? If so then there's nothing remarkable about his return to blindness. I like that. If the author disapproves of the vengeance, though, then the return to blindness is a damning statement about vengeance culture in medieval Iceland. And and while I think that the saga is definitely interested in the failings of feud culture, I I don't feel like the author presents this episode in that light. Although, now that I say that, there might be something to it. I don't know what to think. (laughs) No, there absolutely is something remarkable about it. This isn't how miraculous healing generally works. I think there's a lot about this scene that we could spend time on. I mean, to take another example, there's no patron. There's no saint interceding on Amundi's behalf. No one is credited with this miracle. It seems to be a direct intervention by God. Well, I don't know that you can say that exactly. Well, I did say that. Uh, And I also said seems to be, so my butt is covered. Okay. Anyway, uh, to, to return to it, although I like Hamer's reading... I don't see evidence of a disapproving slant to the episode at all. Uh This is a revenge narrative, and it provides a satisfying conclusion to an otherwise unsatisfying resolution from several chapters earlier, before the conversion. Mm -hmm. Amundi's judgment of what's happened to him is that now it's clear what God wants. And and that judgment is only reinforced by Njal saying, such things are preordained. Uh Where's the negative judgment in that? I mean, are we Uh really asking the reader to read against everything the saga tells us? See? So, so in other words, you agree with me. Well, I think we agree with each other. Oh, that's one way to put it. <laughs> it's a it's a mutual thing, Andy. All right. Uh, so that's where we more or less have to leave things for now. The island is Christianized, but that doesn't mean that we've left the world of feud violence behind. Right. Njal has lost a son, and his enemies are still out there plotting against him. What has uh, Morth Valgertsen been doing all this while that Njal's been mourning Hoskold and welcoming Christianity to the shores of Iceland. Mm. Well, we're going to find out soon. And we'll be back very soon with our expanded discussion of the conversion of Iceland. Uh, that's turned into a two-parter all by itself, and we're all ready to record it, so now it's just a question of finding world enough in time. Without question, that's always the biggest problem for us. But in the meantime, let us know what you thought of this episode. You can reach us in all the usual ways on Facebook, where we are Saga Thing Podcasts, on Twitter, where we're Saga Thing Pod, and our email at sagathingpodcasts at gmail.com. Or you can wait for your neighbor to repair their front sidewalk, write your thoughts in the wet cement, wait for it to harden, and then send us a picture of the message. Mm-hmm. Uh, along with a picture of your neighbor, who I'm sure will be thrilled to have been part of your installation of art. Certainly, you could do that. Um, you can also visit us at sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com to find the archives of previous episodes, look at our ever-expanding collection of pictures of Saga Thingmen and the monuments that they're visiting or the landscapes that they're visiting or all the cool things that they're seeing around the world that are Saga-related. Um, there's also a bibliography section for this and other episodes. And, of course, if you are so inclined, visit our Saga Thing store. That's going to be it for now. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now. Yeah, uh, John Nephilathel Statenson.
with me. You were so close. I was good. about to applaud you. That was great. <laughs> I almost made you it. Almost there. You stumbled on the on the finish. Why yeah. does the Nephilim have to be in? There? <laughs> uh, it's a hell of a name. 